Hey everyone, you are listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Enjoy the message. Hey, my name's Emil. <laughs> if you guys don't know me, uh, I'm going to start this preach by just reading a bit of a text conversation between Greg and I. I'm going to expose him real quick. So this happened on Friday afternoon, Friday late afternoon. Bro, just letting you know, (laughs) I've come down with a bad cough, chest and throat. I'm hoping that it's just a cold. I've already prepped my sermon. I'm still so keen to preach, but if I can't, you may have to jump in. So I said, done, I'll start prepping tonight. And then he went, rough, eh? I wasn't going to say anything, (laughs) but worried it gets worse. Well, Greg, it could get worse. (laughs) So I hope you're watching today. Uh, Welcome. Thanks for joining us today. I'm going to pray for us, um, and then we're going to dive in. Cool. Um, Yeah, let's pray. Lord, uh, we just want to thank you that we are able to gather around your word this morning. We are in awe of you this morning, Lord. We're in awe of your word. These are your words. They're not anyone else's but yours. And I pray that you administer to us this morning, Lord. Only you. We want to hear from you. We pray that you would reveal yourself to us through your word this morning. Open our hearts, open our eyes, Lord, open our ears, let us have ears to hear, um, and I pray that you would just please just reveal yourself, in Jesus' name, amen. So we're taking a break from 1 Corinthians, um, we've been going through lessons from a messy church, if you have been tracking with us, um, but to the, in the build-up to Easter, we like to do a Palm Sunday preach, um, and this week we're going to be looking at Luke 20, so if you have a Bible, Please turn with me to to Luke chapter 20. The text will be on the screen as we go, so you don't have to worry about it. Um, But just to give you a little bit of background, Holy Week, or Palm Sunday, is all about Jesus' last days before his crucifixion. Um, He comes to the city of Jerusalem riding on a donkey uh, in an amazing amazing fulfillment of prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. In the final weeks, Jesus fulfills many, many, many prophecies, but he also fuels a bit of a division. So there's, there's kind of this division going on at the moment between those who are his followers, also Jewish people, those who are his followers, and also those who are his foes, who are the religious leaders. Um, after entering Jerusalem and cleansing the temple in, in Luke 19, Luke tells us he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could, that they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. So some people, they wanted to hang him, and others were hanging on his words. Today we're going to look at another, another event happening in that final week. It's two days after he's entered the city, and, and he's already preaching in, in the synagogues, in the temple. So in Luke 20, 19-26, the religious leaders are questioning Jesus to try to expose him as an imposter. So let's read together. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. So what parable is this? They're referring to a parable in Luke 19. Uh, It's the parable of the tenants. But they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something, he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. 
Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose, whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. So imagine with me for a second that you are not a Justin Bieber fan. All right? You're not. For many of you, that won't be very hard. But I know that there's some of you, there's some undercover fans in here. I know. There's no shame in being a believer as well as a believer. Maybe you're not a fan because you think he's, you know, maybe he's not as talented as you think he is. Um, maybe he's not as talented as the world gives him credit for. But just imagine with me that the next time he has a show, you buy a ticket to see him so that you can, you can capture his supposed lack of talent on camera. But in order for you to really sell this ruse, the one thing that you don't want to do is you don't want to walk into this concert wearing a, an I hate Justin Bieber t-shirt. That's not going to sell it. Of course you're not going to do that. It's quite, you're definitely going to be doing the opposite. Maybe you'll buy a shirt. Maybe you'll even learn a few of his songs because you need people to believe that you're a true fan, but actually your motives are skewed. And so we're going to see something like that happening in this passage today. The chief priests and the scribes, they have a strategy. They want to send spies in who pose as insiders as if they respect, as if they admire Jesus, but all, but all in order to ask leading questions to try to trap him in what he's saying. So let's, let's begin. Strategies reveal motives. In verse 20, so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and the jurisdiction of the governor. So the goal of this strategy was to get him to Pilate, the Roman, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, whose job it was to make sure that there was no trouble in Israel at the time. He would deal with any rebels, any insurrectionists, which at the moment, you know, there's talk of Jesus being something like that. And their strategy to do this is lies, it's deception, and it's very, very early on and quickly it's revealed in their hearts. So these religious leaders, they claim to love God, they claim to love His Word, but clearly they don't. They ask Him a question that is designed to endanger Him before the Roman government. Their deception doesn't only extend towards Jesus, though. In their own actions, it doesn't only, it's not only showing the uh, um, deception towards Jesus, but actually, it's because they're, they're also really, really blind. They can't see. Based on the previous uh, parable, they can't see. They're even deceiving themselves. It's a condition of their hearts, and now they're being exposed. As the religious leaders of their day, they should be setting an example of what it means to love God and to love His Word, but actually, it's, it's very clear. They don't do that. So I want to kind of take this concept and, and take a look at ourselves real quick. What do we do that might come across as us deceiving ourselves, deceiving each other, even deceiving God? We've got things like language. The language of Christianity is very easy for someone to claim. But it's the fruit of the life that shows the state of the heart. And that's curious because it happened for them. 
But the more things change, the more they actually stay the same. We have the same problem that's rife amongst us today. We make all sorts of claims, and we've even got really used, we love these Christian taglines or phrases that make us look a certain way in front of others. This can all be smoke and mirrors to hide the deceit that's actually looming in our hearts. And it's very, it's deep. Anyone can follow rules, church. We're given rules in our day-to-day life that are quite simple to follow. Others are maybe a bit more difficult, but the fact remains is that rules are very easy to follow. Children are able to obey rules. They have rules at school. So following rules, speaking in a certain way, these are not reflective of what's happening deeper in our hearts. Psalm 44, verse 20 to 21. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Another one, Proverbs 21, verse 2. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Verse 21 tells us he perceived their craftiness. So the Lord can see into the very depths of our own hearts, into places we might not even be aware of yet. I'm really glad that that Jade did her call to worship on on the parable of the sower, because we're going to come back to that. So the Lord can see deeper than we we really know. He can see deeper than, than we even know ourselves. He knows us. Um, a funny story, when, when Greg offered me this job, um, there was an unexpected phrase that he used when he described um, what things were going to be like. He, he used this term, heart surgery, and uh, he told me that there would be quite a lot of heart surgery that was going to be going on, and I was a bit perplexed at first, didn't really understand um, what he meant by that, but after, after some time, I realized it's, it's a really painful and it's an extremely uncomfortable experience when we're encountered with this person of Jesus Christ who can see and cut right through this shallow surface layer of Christianity, it does expose something deeper and, and wicked in us. What's more interesting, so we're told that the chief priests and the scribes fully understood that Jesus was directing the parable to them, and yet they still, for some reason, they still didn't listen They perceived that he had told this parable against them. That's verse 19. And now we see that things are unfolding just as Jesus had spoken in Luke chapter 19. They are in the midst. They're literally in the middle of helping Jesus fulfill a prophecy. But they are blinded by their own motives. They are so thirsty for power that they cannot even stop to recognize what what they're currently doing. And these are leaders. These are Pharisees. They're leaders in the church. And so they know God's word. They have God's word. They are well-versed in God's word. God has given us his word, and every time we hear it, we're hearing him speak directly to us. They do it again at the end of verse 26. And that says, if they were not able, and they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. They were dumbstruck by his answer, yes, but they still didn't believe him. They didn't, there's no substance to what he was saying in their hearts. His answer was very, very brilliant, and we will get there, but they still didn't believe him. So a question for us, maybe a, a bit of a tough question for us here today. 
Do we come into church every Sunday? Do we sit here week after week under God's word? But we're not listening. Maybe we're not believing. Maybe we're not embracing it as we should. Are we in the same boat as these Pharisaic Jews? What do, we, what do we do in a situation like this? Are there instances where we are hearing things said from up here? Marveling at maybe eloquence. Maybe we're appreciating great music. We have comforting community at this church. But we're walking away completely unchanged. Unaffected by God's word. Because maybe we ate all the chips before the burger. We fill up on peripherals and side dishes but we never get to enjoy the satisfaction of the main component, which is Jesus. Um, my housemate and I, uh, we used to have a small ritual at home that we, uh, we hardly did anymore, uh, but it does pop up from time to time. And, and we'd set a day aside, maybe four months apart, we'd set a day aside. Um, and we called, it a, we called it a stock take. Uh, basically, we would have a few days, a few, yeah, few uh, days, months apart, and on this specific day, we would literally just take stock. That's what we would do. What have we learned? What have you been challenged by? How have you grown? What is God challenging you with right now? Are you making an effort to change the things that you've been struggling with for years? I want to look a little bit closer at this, at this question that Jesus, this, at the question that Jesus gives the answer to. So after some flattering comments. Here comes the question, verse 22. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? So, I mean, I would wonder how long it took them, it took them to come up with this question. It's brilliant from their viewpoint because they want him to make some kind of anti-Rome statement. Um, and in doing that, they'll have, they'll have to report him because he's anti-Rome. So in other words, the question is, what kind of revolutionary are you going to be, Jesus? Are you the real Messiah? Are you here to overthrow Rome and bring about God's kingdom? Or are you just some wannabe that's passing through town? Who are you? So we move on. Religious or Roman revolution? So the question is about the law of God. It's not about Roman law. Is it lawful? In terms of the law of God, does it require, does God require us to pay taxes to, to Caesar? The question relates to one of the burning controversies in Israel. What is the proper response to the Roman rule and occupation in, in our land? This is our land. We're paying them taxes. So what should we do? So they really thought they had Jesus stumped on this question. And it really, it, all it was, it was a simple answer. It was a yes or no answer. That's all Jesus had to say. But it is a bit of a catch-22. So if he says no, you don't have to pay taxes to Caesar. Well, then he's a rebel, a religious zealot. They'll have him quickly arrested. They'll have him thrown into prison, which is, which is actually what they want. They do want that. Suddenly, there's cause for them to hand him over to the authorities because he's encouraging people to stand up to an oppressive government. That does sound like rebellion. Sounds a bit like insurrection. And with the numbers growing behind him, Jesus could have easily started a rebellion if he wanted to. He's, he's amassed large numbers at this point. And if he says, yes, it is right to give to Rome, then actually he's just one of them. He's one of the Romans. All this talk about being a king with a kingdom, is just it's smoke and mirrors. What kind of revolutionary goes along with what's happening in the land? 
You're going with the flow. Why would the crowd trust someone who's for the Roman Empire? On the contrary, Jesus is supposed to be standing up against the empire. By getting him to be... By getting him to be for the tribute, he will lose the trust and the following of these people, ultimately resulting in a loss of power, a loss of momentum. And so the leaders get what they want as well. Either way, Jesus is, is not going to win if he says yes or if he says no. He's not winning. And so yes, they thought it was the perfect catch-22. Um, it's like a lawyer going to court. Uh, he'll put you on the stand and he'll say, have you, have you stopped beating your wife, yes or no? If you say yes, well, you're in trouble. And if you say no, you're also in trouble because you're still beating your wife. Something's happening that's wrong there. It often feels in some way similar to our current cultural sensibilities. People are looking for ways to trip us up. It's really not even, it's not even that difficult anymore, guys. The Bible is offensive enough. It's challenging this age just by what it has to say. And we don't even have to open our mouths and we're already offending people. But we're not Jesus, and he responds to them like a masterful politician, very, very well. In verse 23 to 25, he perceived their craftiness, and he said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So what is he, what's he trying to do here? In his answer, he's trying to reveal the true nature of, of his mission here on earth. His kingdom is unlike any other kingdom. We're going to take a look at that now. Jesus is trying to usher in this gospel revolution. He is suggesting a dual citizenship, but primary allegiance. That's what he's doing. He's saying, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and give to God what belongs to God. But we know that we live in, in two worlds. We're part of two worlds at the moment. We live here and we, we're living in the future too. We're living for a, a kingdom that's about to come. I want to take us to Romans 12 verse 1 to 2. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So what are we not to do in this situation? The church is not to take over civil government. The church is not to rebel against civil government. Government exists exactly what it's there for. It's ordained by God, and they serve a purpose in our society. But at the same time, we don't, we're not supposed to avoid the world. We, can't, we have to be part of this world. But we don't assimilate. We're not supposed to assimilate. This is often a tough, it's maybe sometimes a rickety bridge to cross. But this is far more than just principles for life. It's not about how do we live in the world. It's not about how do we live in the kingdom of God. We have to do those two things. But Jesus' st his statement, it's far more than principles just for life. So he says in verse 24, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said Caesar's. So Jesus makes a big deal about the image that the coin bears and the inscription upon it. It's Caesar's image, they say, and the inscription declares 
him to be Pontifex Maximus, king and high priest. But Jesus also claims to be a king and a high priest. So here we have the ultimate, we have this weird contrast. Who is the true and better king? We see here that Jesus is not anti-Rome, but he's not pro-Rome either. His point is, whatever things bear Caesar's image belong to him, but whatever bears God's image belongs to him as well. And what is it that bears God's image? It's you and I, church. So we give the money that's due to Caesar. We give the money that's due to our government, but we do not give them the ultimate allegiance. We do not give the world our ultimate allegiance because there is a higher authority over Caesar and there's a greater king and he deserves all of our loyalty. I want to take us back to Romans 12. It says, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's what we offer to God, our bodies as a living sacrifice. So when we see Jesus saying that he's a king and not Caesar, he's not saying that he's simply replacing Caesar, but that his kingdom is completely other than what Caesar could ever offer. What defines Caesar's kingdom? It's power, it's status, it's wealth. If you have those things, you have meaning, you have success in the world's eyes. In the kingdoms of this world, if you don't have these things, your life is a it's a failure. That's what the world will tell us. We could argue this to the, to the nth degree. We could say how some of these things are good. Positions of influence and wealth and even power. If you have power to make positive change. But we know that all of these things can corrupt as well. They're traps. They're designed to slowly rot and reel us in. Eventually devour us if we aren't careful. If we're not on it all the time. I know, that sounds, I know that sounds really harsh, but I would encourage you to do a stock take about it. Jesus is showing us that his revolution is completely different because he's not after those things. Power, status, and wealth, he's not after those things. In the kingdoms of this world, every new revolutionary is after the same three things, power, status, and wealth. When one dies, the next one comes, and chases after the same things. It's not really a revolution. It's just rearranging furniture. It's just rearranging pieces that already exist. And so Jesus says, let me give you a real revolution. Jesus' kingdom is completely different to those values. He's a king without money. He had to, the fact that he had to ask someone to show him a denarius, he, he couldn't even take out one of his own. It's a kingdom without money, a lord with no status, He doesn't leverage his power. He has no home. He's ultimately rejected and placed on a cross between two thieves. Doesn't sound very kingly. It's very much the opposite. Have you ever seen a king like this? Every other king only receives power when they get elected into position by the people. But Jesus is crowned king, not when he's elected by the people, but when he's executed by the people. Only when we see that he did this all for us, then we are lifted out of the power of worldly values and live our lives for Christ's glory. The power of the gospel changes our hearts. 
And we no longer need these things to define who we are. Power, status, wealth, they don't define us. So this is a a gospel revolution. It's not a pro-Rome revolution. It's not an anti-Rome revolution. It's It's a gospel revolution that cannot be stopped. They tried to stop Jesus. They betrayed him. They beat him. They killed him. They buried him. And then he rose from the dead, and it accelerated his revolution, and it won't slow down. It's not going to slow down anytime soon. We are going to learn more about this next week. So I want to ask you some, some questions, just, just um, maybe some challenging questions for, for all of us to think about. Um, and I'm, like I said, I'm glad that Jade brought up the parable of the sower. Um, we see the scribes, we see the Pharisees, Something is not dropping into their hearts. Belief is not taking place. Something is blocking them from accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior. And and we'll never know what that is. God is obviously allowing that to happen. But I want to ask us, why are are we here today in this building? Why are we here at 10.15 on a Sunday morning? Why are we here, church? Maybe you're here because the band sounds great. We do have a great band. Maybe we're here because, you know, Greg's a really charismatic guy. He's very, very good at what he does. Maybe this is routine. You've grown up with this your whole life. You don't know any other way besides, I need to go to church on a Sunday morning. This is where I go, and this is where I will go. Till I'm 50, until I die, I will come to church as part of my routine. Maybe we have a really great kids' ministry. You know, you get, you get to bring your child They get to grow up with some good old-fashioned Christian values. Um, They get to learn some rules, you know, functioning members of society. Maybe you really love community here. We do have great community here. So if you answered yes to any of those questions, good. They're all amazing things. (laughs) And God will use all of those things to transform our lives. I'm not advocating against any of those things. They're great I don't understand how God works. I don't understand God's timing. But I know that those are good things. But I want to ask us, are we here to get aboard this this freight train that is the gospel message, that is Jesus Christ? I want to encourage us. I want to challenge us. If there's something else other than Jesus that's motivating us to be here, I I really want us to wrestle with that. If there's something else other than Jesus that is motivating us to be here, let's go and wrestle with that. If it is something else, I I trust that God's timing is perfect. I trust that he will reveal whatever he needs to reveal to you in whatever time. Like I said, those things are all good, and God will reveal himself through whatever he needs to. And I don't mean to take any stabs at anyone. If I never say it from up here, we may never think about it. Um, But it has to start with Jesus. And so that's what I want to ask us, church. Why why are you here today? Are you here because you believe? Are you here out of routine? It all has to start with Jesus. Amen. I'm going to pray for us. Worship team, thank you. Jesus, you are the one true king. Lord, we may not always understand how it is you operate, Lord. 
we're told that you are operating in an upside down manner. What we think we need is good, Lord. You tell us you don't need that. You need me. Lord, would you open our eyes? Will you reveal to us what is truly important? Will you show us how to let go of this world and to cling to you, Lord, to cling to a hope in the next life? You're the only one that can get us there. Community's not going to save us. Money's not going to save us. Power and wealth and status is not going to save us. Lord, you are the only one that can save. But we need to see you. Lord, reveal yourself to us, please. We want you to be the reason that we are here every Sunday. We want you to be the reason why our bums are in these seats. Not for anything else. Everything else is a bonus. You are the main meal, Lord. You are what we are here for. Let's sing together.